Can you hear that? There's a fly buzzing around here in the space cave. Greetings and a big warg to all of you from the furthest recesses of our known universe, safely tucked away in a cave. Nice to um, invite you in here again. Have you in here for a bit, escape all the madness out there for part two of a really enjoyable talk about dinosaurs and a conversation and a topic we've been meaning to get to since the beginning of the show. This is uh, a show that's made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. So thanks to those of you who support the show on Patreon and or with one-time donations or just by um, rating the show on iTunes. The Beast might have your misgivings about The Beast knowing what you like or don't like, but for those of you that are willing to um, enter into the whatever you would call it, the all-knowing superstructure quantifies and manages all of your interests and desires in life and then uses that data to market more things to you and people like you, that's okay. For those of you that march into it and click on a number of stars for this show, I appreciate it. Okay, probably some promotional things to get to, but you know what? Well, maybe we'll do that again. Maybe not. Let's get right to it with more of this fieldwork brewing hazy IPA called A Terrible Idea. If you haven't had it, see if you can get your hands on it. I enjoyed it. Mike did as well. Here's part two with Michael Habib. So we didn't get around in part one to, and I meant to write this down, your position at USC. And I don't know if you're able to speak, uh, you're not here on behalf of them, and your opinions are only your own, but your title is very unique. It's very specific. Yes. So, uh, yes, I'm here of just my own accord. These are all just my own thoughts on the world. Um, but I am a professor at USC, and I'm specifically a uh, an assistant professor of integrative anatomical sciences. Integrative anatomical sciences. I, I remember looking at that and thinking, I'll remember that. That's so weird. And I should have written it down because I integrative anatomical so your knowledge of snakes and then reptiles and birds and and it all ties in to dinosaurs in a lot of ways well a lot of ways it also turn uh connects to vertebrate anatomy more broadly which is why i am in the school of medicine so that department is in the keck school of medicine (laughs) at the university of southern california so i spend part of my time figuring out how you know, the faces of reptiles work and, and, and how wings work in birds and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, both in the fossil record and, and the living living systems. And then I spend a good part of my time teaching cadaveric anatomy to medical students. So, That's so I cool. take so I take human apart humans apart in the morning <laughs> and I take birds apart in the afternoon, basically. Do you really? Yeah. What was your first time like you really like did um, like forensically or an autopsy, I guess, on a human body. So my first human dissection 
We've been in graduate school. Oh, it's been a, it's been longer than I care to remember now. Uh, uh, 14 years ago, 15 years ago, something like yeah. that would have been the first time. Then I've been teaching medical anatomy for as a well as a professor for nine years, six at USC and three at a place called Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But I also taught as graduate student in the lab for a few years before that Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a PhD student. So uh, it's, I've been at that for, for some time. Um, And I picture you because you're wearing the dinosaur shirt as a little kid, you know, roaring and smashing dinosaurs together digging in the dirt and and yeah, all those, all those classic things of just a kid. Did, did you get picked on or were people like, yeah, this kid's just like dinosaurs. I I got picked on a little initially, Mm -hmm. but, and, and this is an interesting phenomenon. I feel like this, there may, might be a lesson in this. I don't know. Or maybe it's just I got lucky. Instead of getting defensive about it, I owned it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, because dinosaurs are cool. Yeah. Like, I kind of won people over. And it transitioned from sort of teasing me in a in a sort of, a, I think, probably a, ultimately a little bit of a malicious sense to, to friendly teasing. Mm-hmm. And some of those people that, like, not really bully me because they're, too, they're almost too young to really bully properly, but, like, <laughs> were kind of were pre-bullying. They transitioned into instead being, like, acquaintances or even friends that like yeah like i went from somehow being like uncomfortably weird to being pleasantly quirky <laughs> and i think it was because i was just like yeah no i'm totally into it yeah no I, I just think they're really cool you know and i just think it's awesome and i love i love things that are really old and all this stuff and they're like well that's kind of weird i'm like yeah well i'm just kind of weird <laughs> you know i wish you could teach that to kids you know the kid comes home and says this is happening that's if nothing else self-defense or otherwise i'd want to teach him that like i think if you're just enthusiastic and you don't let it affect you they're gonna win him over people like that that's a human thing you know to like enthusiasm and excitement but i think so often i remember how often kids would say things that like oh you could tell they just kind of butchered what their parents had told them to say or right, they would yeah. go like, you're just jealous because you want to do it. You know, like, oh, that's not going to make you any friends, that right. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But did you ever, when you were that kid and then you head off into school, think like, oh, I'm going to have to cut apart a human? Or did that not bother you? Or what was the the ramp up to that kind of thing? So that ramped up a little later. So it was it was as, uh, as difficult as transition as, as one might expect. I didn't really t- get into that route until graduate school. Mm-hmm. So as an undergraduate student is where I started looking for like, okay, well, how are, how are people making a living in paleontology? Like what, you know, what does it mean to be a paleontologist? Well, it really means you're studying extinct life, right? Mm-hmm. But you didn't want to be Indiana Jones or you did? Uh, a little bit maybe, but it wasn't, I did, that wasn't like, the, the goal wasn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily have like a, a kind of a movie role model in mind. I yeah. just, it was, I was really more inspired by museums. So you spent a lot of time at museums. Were you the type of kid bring your own magnifying glass, write things down? Yeah, more or less that kind of kid, you know, okay. and, and memorize most of the signs already, and was basically giving my parents a tour. I was, you know, age four, you know, I was that, <laughs> that kind of. And um, and you know, I was passed my museum, and for me, it all started at the Smithsonian okay. um, Institute in Washington D.C. at their at the National Museum of Natural mm-hmm. History, because I grew up near Washington D.C. So that was the big yeah. Uh, I got to go on a museum. field trip there in fifth grade, as good as advertised. Just oh, phenomenal. for sure, that's the largest natural history collection in the world incidentally whoa um and so that that changed my life and and i wanted i and i think part of the difference was whereas other kids were interested went to a phase where they're interested in dinosaurs because they went through this kind of like real monsters thing mm-hmm. uh for me i guess maybe started that way but didn't transition to actually what i really liked about it was that it felt like time travel mm-hmm. that i could 
mentally put myself into an alien world. Yeah. But it wasn't alien. It was this planet at right. a different time. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I think to a certain extent, I watched a lot of Star Trek with my dad growing up, and I think to a certain extent, like what I probably really wanted was a warp drive to go find aliens on another planet, but since mm-hmm. a warp drive wasn't forthcoming, the next best thing was, well, if I can't travel through space to find crazy creatures in other places, I'll travel <laughs> through time. Yeah. And you can go out in the field and you can go to, a, you know, a, you know, a late Cretaceous sedimentary rock formation and you can time travel by finding the remains of a, a late Cretaceous dinosaur or crocodilian or what have you yeah. in the rocks. So, I'm traveling to a to a world that used to exist and doesn't exist anymore, but it's extra cool because it's technically our world, or at least it's what became our world. Right. And it's so like that was if you wanted to always go find uh, the best water park that ever existed, and then you open your back door, and in your backyard, you just had to go through some bushes. There it was. And right. It took a bit of magic to get through those bushes, but still. But still, right. It took a little bit of magic, and in this case, maybe a chisel and some <laughs> large hammers. But so that was kind of the passion. But then it was sort of well, well. Paleontology, though, in a way, is is by its very nature kind of a, an integration of different fields. It's kind of different stuff mashed together because there's geology in there and there's anatomy in there. And there's ecology in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all kinds of different things in there. Uh, and so what part of that was I most passionate about? And I say I, would, I liked the anatomical component the most. I liked I thought more like a biologist than I did like a geologist. Mm-hmm. I did get some geological training because I needed that for the path I was on. But I said that was, I was going to focus on well, what did the, how did people get the best training possible in that? And what did they tend to do? And it turned out that at least in the U S largely they are anatomists who are trained in both human anatomy and the anatomy of other vertebrate animals. And they often are academics who teach medical anatomy. Mm-hmm. I thought, Oh, this is great. This does all the things I, and I'm interested in. It gives me the training I want. I actually wasn't sure how much I was going to like teaching anatomy. I feared it might be kind of a means to an end. Uh, it turns out I love it. Mm-hmm. And so actually I spend most of my time teaching at USC. Um, mm-hmm. So more than half my time is teaching in the anatomy it, lab. It sounds like you get a little bit of an option, whether you want to per semester, maybe spend more time doing something else. Uh, you you can. It depends. Uh-huh. Um, I would have to do a fairly complicated renegotiation of my contract in my particular case for that, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. In other institutions, sometimes you, it's even more semester to semester. But I'm comfortable and happy with doing lots of teaching of future physicians, and then I still have enough time to pursue my interests in, in paleontology. And I spend a lot of time at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. There we go. Uh, where I'm a research associate. So you were asking about my appointments earlier. I have, uh, uh, in addition to my appointment at USC, I also have a position in the Dinosaur Institute at the NHMLA. So cool. It really, see, and I don't, I'm learning about this for the first time. I'm also an outsider. But to me, it seems like based on what you wanted to do, what your interests are, and, and the, the kind of leeway you get and the, the way that your career allows you a, a pretty broad sort of scope, seems like it's ideal. Like little kid, you could look up and be like, way to go, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I've thought about that before. I've actually thought, would little kid me be proud of adult me? And I think, you know, on the whole, the answer is definitely yes. And that makes me feel really good. That's sort of, oh, sort of yeah. like, that's like, you know, that definitely helps me sleep, sleep well <laughs> at night, you know, thinking like, you know what? I'm making little me proud. Like, you know, Hell, I, grew, yeah, I, grew up, I grew up into somebody that, that the child me would be, <laughs> would look up to. And I, and that's, you know, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a good thing. Is it is it a pursuit for finalized answers? Is it, do you just enjoy the the kind of construction of the past 
Earth from the beginning to where we are? Do you, does it help you project into where it, we may be going as humanity and or life as a whole? Is that too much stuff all at once? Or does that make any sense? It makes sense. I mean, it's, well, I would caution anyone that's interested in a professional science career against looking for finalized answers. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the, the journey should be as or more important than the, than the end point because uh, the end point's going to change on you throughout your career. It's just the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a number of different things about, the, about that journey and about the investigation that I find rewarding. A lot of it's just trying to find the best answers we can to things. And again, the process of trying to figure this out, I find really invigorating there are applications to it as well i mean yeah it does give us it, it tells us something about our place in the universe it tells us something about how systems on earth work over long periods of time it gives us an idea of co- uh, how to contextualize our impact on the planet and where we might be headed in the future like you alluded to it uh there's there's other applications as well because i do a lot of biomechanics and uh, a lot of what i what i work on is using the fossil record and the living record basically uh in, in, in combination to get at fundamental properties of how living animals particularly move. I do a lot of motion study stuff. There is actually some synergy there with engineering and robotics. So I have also a background in fluid mechanics. And I use that a lot in my, <laughs> in my work. Cause I do a lot of work on like, I how just picture a little kid. You being like, Nice. Nice. <laughs> Throw in a little splash of <laughs> yeah, yeah. fluid mechanics well, and robotics. That's yeah, great. some fluid mechanics and robotics. Yeah, so I've, I've given guest lectures in robotics at, uh, at the Carnegie Mellon uh, Robotics Institute, and stuff cool. like that, and a number of other places, scale composites and, mm-hmm. and such. And, and uh, the, the reason is because the kind of work I do is, is good at highlighting principles of interest that you might you might be able to take from how animals are doing things and apply it to your new your next generation drone for example or what have you so like when boston dynamics does their dog or or the what's it called uh, delta or the 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 bipedal one Mm -hmm. that obviously they're looking at a a number of things but you could have some input on that like oh here's where here's why it's always toppling over I remember taking a dynamics when I was in college and everything was vector based and you know like we have two so a motorcycle going around a track or just making a turn the professor I remember one time being like it shouldn't work it shouldn't be able to turn because you have the acceleration vector if you have a, a, a wheel that's spinning is headed in and so therefore to to initiate the turn it shouldn't work leaning or otherwise, you, you know, and the guy, he says, I had a guy in my class who, who rode a motorcycle and said, you know, actually before you lean into it, you'd kind of kick the inside, uh, or your, your inside hand, you kick the steering wheel up a little bit so that the wheel is actually facing out. Now acceleration is pointed more in the direction that you want to turn. Now, and the professor was like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. So that it was like everything intuitively that he thought about was just in vector form. Like it's, you shouldn't be able to lean and turn a motorcycle hearing it from this. So I, anyway, I think that with robotics and things like that, some of the things that we're just locked into thinking, no, this is how a human walks or this is how a thing moves. You might be able to come in and say, that's a common misconception. We actually, if you really think about it, we move our hips like this or we, we just slightly move our shoulders. Yeah, yeah, those things like that. In my case, it's it uh, often uh, is related to wings and fins uh, more than walking. Although I've done some leaping and walking stuff too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, but that's a, yeah, that's a good good sort of uh, conceptualization of the sorts of problems you get involved in. It you know it works a little bit more like this, or even just kind of base principles like um, so. Somebody I was working on a couple of people recently. The there's so a flying animal 
or an airplane or helicopter, what have you, uses lift to support the weight. Mm-hmm. And if it's a flapping flyer, uh, it uses some of that lift for thrust as well. And uh, as does like a helicopter, for example, there's something called a lift distribution on the wing. So it's like which part of the wing produces more lift versus less. And it turns out that that flying animals, birds, bats, etc., uh, use a different distribution than what we use on airplanes. Mm-hmm. And it probably is a better option for a lot of different functions. So so it may be worth altering the wings. And there's actually a, a guy named Albion Bowers up at, uh, he's a chief, uh, one of the chief scientists up at the Palmdale Division of NASA, mm-hmm. who's made a test drone, basically, uh, that that uses this kind of lift distribution by using an animal-inspired wing shape. And it turns out that it gets a huge efficiency boost. When I think of that, what I think of is, and they've done this, and they usually like maybe like a Terry Gilliam thing or something like that, where like the the big vessel would actually flap. You're like, oh, well, does it take more energy for us? It would be fuel, et cetera, to like make it flap or to, to the, for them to pay off in your thrust, or is it better to have it just a completely fixed wing? So that's what I think of when you say that. But you're, you're probably still fixed, but just it's, the this shape. is still fixed, just the shape of the wing. But to your point. Um, one of the it's a very interesting time, if you will, for someone like myself who works a lot on on the anatomy and the physics of wings mm-hmm. and animals, because historically aircraft didn't borrow all that much directly from animals. I mean, there was kind of the overall initial inspiration of well, we know things heavier than air can fly because we've seen a duck fly away, you know. Yeah. But the but for the most part, because we were building things that would need to be very big and very fast. And had different kinds of constraints. Like it didn't need to reproduce, but it didn't need to carry passengers inside. You know, the the what we were aiming, the goals and the size and the speed regime was so different from what an animal would do that that there was only a, the broadest level of analogy for the most part. But we're increasingly building things that are not that do not have a human on board. Mm-hmm. You know, and are smaller and might be a little rotor drones or something. And actually. The dynamics of rotors and dynamics of flapping wings are somewhat similar, um, and there and and in those size ranges, actually, flapping wings and things might be useful. Uh, one thing animals do really well, for example, they tend to be very maneuverable. They're very good at flying at slow speeds. Mm-hmm. So if you want to carefully fly through a window or something, they <laughs> they're very good at landing and taking off from a very small area without yeah. need a you know a big runway. And they're very good at being what we call multimodal. That is, so a bird might be very good at running, but also very good at flying. Mm-hmm. And it can fold up its wings when it's in the other mode, uh, which is a major space-saving uh, advantage. Well, when they made the jet that could, like, turn, you know, turn the wings and now it, like, just drop itself down like a helicopter... It, that has to be the thought with watching, you know, a duck run along for a, a ways with its wings pinned at its side and then spread them out and then go things like that, that like, Oh, how can we emulate that? How can we model that? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So you see these tricks, you're like, Oh, well it'd be really nice if, if we could, you know, if it could, if the wing could fold like that, or uh, if it could, you know, if it could tuck in and go through a tiny space in the air <laughs> like that, or it could, transit or it could it could use its wings for both jumping and flying so they're like bats for example some mm-hmm. of the ground launching bats they'll actually use the wings as part of the propulsion for takeoff Whoa. as a folded structure what? so they're walking on them and then they bounce off of the wings in, in addition to the feet but the wings actually produce most of the force so you know there's all these cool all these cool tricks you can you can use they're mostly relevant to smaller sizes and lower speeds than the things we've historically made but we're now starting to engineer structures that are in that realm so all of a sudden animals are a much more useful model for those kinds of things than they 
probably used to be. So there, there's a real heightened interest. And that interest, where does where do you think it really comes from? Just to see if we can do it, to be more efficient, to, you know, we got like, okay, we got planes, jets, helicopters, we, we, we're mobile. Is it just like, yeah, but we don't have what they have. Is that the interest? I think there's there's a bit of that. I think for a lot of folks on the on the kind of the front end of the R&D side, they just, you know, their, their passion is doing new things that no one's done before. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are some more practical concerns. I mean, there's obviously military uses for things that can fly slowly and quietly through windows, for example. Um, if they invented a military weapon that could walk along with its wings under its feet, spring off of them, use some thrust with those wings, and take off, that would be pretty cool. It would be pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, send it in to pick up someone pinned behind enemy lines or something. You know. mm-hmm. But there are, uh, there are also, of course, commercial interests, um, you know, for shipping and things of that nature um, and recreational stuff as well. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I think, you know, initially the price tag on something like that's going to be so large that it's just going to be high-end commercial to military use. But eventually it'll be will be good enough at it that, you know, that toys will be folding wing compact, Man, that's cool. you know, you know, flapping wing drones. And, and, yeah. you just, and, you know, the kid, you know, the kid gets their, their, Christmas present or whatever, and they unwrap it and they get this little thing and they they toss it in the air and the wings unfold and it flaps around the room and you know they and it, you know and that's they, worth they, it. Just they could tell it. they could tell it to land and it walks. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's you that you could see that be becoming the the toy of the future, for example. And obviously, yeah. there's a there's a tremendous amount of uh, uh, potential uh, money in entertainment. So there, there's a lot of different angles, and I think in the, I think a lot of the impetus in the short term is just kind of to do it. And, and maybe and, and, and to military and maybe like the most sophisticated commercial uses. But downstream, I think it's going to take the same same path that, you know, the little quadcopters took. Mm-hmm. You know, they start, it started as a, can we make a, you know, a slow flying maneuverable drone for surveillance? Yeah. And now it's, oh, look, now we can make them cheaply enough that you can buy them at Costco <laughs> and give them somebody as a gift and fly them in your backyard. Yeah. But still, I mean, the thought of, you know, Christmas morning or something, a little kid opening it, and say it has like an Alexa kind of component, you know, Bernard, jump off the table and fly around, sure thing. And then <laughs> yes, that, that is worth it, I think. Yep. Is it, I mean, I, from your knowledge of the prehistory, dinosaurs, et cetera, and into the anatomy of things that have been, you know, ex- existing through that or that are new, i.e. us. Uh, that it all f- it all lends itself to some knowledge on the world, but also the future of the world, like the like this sort of mm-hmm. toy or whatever. That does that seem odd to you ever? You're like, this is so strange that my field of expertise, it, one, is so broad, but two, that it all kind of circles around and complements each other to some degree. It always catches it catches me off guard, but I think I've gotten sort of used to the just kind of following the waves where they go and weird things come up. Like, oh, I never thought of using it that way, but all right, let's, let's give it a shot. You know, you get, <laughs> uh-huh. you get a phone call from someone like, oh, we're really interested in bringing you on this project to do this thing that oh, I never imagined anyone would do. Okay, yep, I can. That's it's, so uh, cool. I guess I've kind of gotten the mode of sort of, instead of being like, was this expected? Instead, just kind of feeling like, can I do it? Mm-hmm. it you know, do I actually think I can be useful? You know, yeah, I think I can. Yeah, I can. I, you know, I, yes, I can answer the question they're trying to answer. I, I'm not sure exactly how they ended up calling the pterosaur specialist on this, but sure, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And your knowledge of, of things like uh, the pterosaur and where the feathers might go in, translating over into the anatomy of something else, teaching your students in school, you know, having that familiarity with like, well, for a long time, feathers went in like this, 
and maybe this changed and getting into then now birds as we know them this is a different this is a different thing and when we're modeling that I, it just seems fascinating to me that all of that would it will become this giant uh database you could draw from yeah it's kind of it's, it's fun i mean um i work on everything from armor to uh armor to wings uh actually it in fact, at the at this very moment, I have an armor project. I have a I do a lot of work on giant flying reptiles. I'm doing a bunch of that at the moment, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I'm doing uh, I do a lot of work on giant animals. I, I think basically I'm just trying to set up to make a dragon. I think it's basically <laughs> yeah, it um, sounds like it. It's just yeah. I'm just you know when when Game of Thrones becomes an actual thing in my backyard, you'll know what happened. Um, but the uh, you know armored flying giant things. But uh, yeah, it, you know it. The the contrast though can be really can be really useful. So you know, just within the the realm of working on things with wings, you know, I work on pterosaurs, birds, and bats. Mm-hmm. None of which are actually terribly closely related to one another. Birds and pterosaurs are a little more closely mm-hmm. related to one another than to, to bats, but they're not that close. So you got three independent origins of of flight invertebrates there, and you can see the themes, and you get this kind of database of a world. Here's all the different ways that they've they've done it, and to the extent that they've done some things the same way, you figure well, that's probably about the only way you can do it, at uh, least with yeah being having vertebrate anatomy. But then you see all the other different variations on the theme, like oh, well, you can suspend your wing off of four of your fingers. You can use one giant finger, like a pterosaur. You can have a short arm, a relatively sh- short arm and hand compared to the other two, and have feathers growing out of it instead like a bird mm-hmm. does you know so it's there's lots of different variations on the overall theme but in the end the wing has to have certain shape characteristics and certain anatomical characteristics to be a wing mm-hmm. so i think in a way that that having that weird library the draw on uh gives me a broader base for these kinds of applied projects it also gives me nice inspiration for understanding the context of what our anatomy does and doesn't do for when i'm teaching uh, medical anatomy but it also just i i I kind of want to know what the limits of biology are. That's kind of like my overarching, like, like what can life on earth here do and not do? And like, mm-hmm. why is it like, how, how's it inter? How does anatomy interact with physics and a lot of time <laughs> and evolutionary, in evolutionary dynamics to, to, to get these kinds of structures, but not these kinds of structures. And that's one reason why I look at the fossil record so much because, 99.9% of all organisms have ever existed or extinct. Mm-hmm. So if you want to know about what the r- rules really are and what is and isn't possible, you really have to go into the fossil record. If you limit yourself to the living, you're only using one, you know, using well, less than 1%, 0.1% of the data really. So does it give you some interesting thoughts on God as like a tinkerer as, you know, well, it, something tried this and this and this, just the random chaos of all of it, the adaptation of all of it. It tried this method and this and this. And why are we limited to only thinking of those that we, you know, that we go, why didn't, why didn't God, or for lack of a better term, you know, that thing, why didn't it try this? Why didn't it try birds that had their wings attached here? Or why didn't it try wings that had four folds in them or etc.? Does it give you those thoughts ever? I mean, it does in a way. I mean, I'm not a particularly religious person myself, um, so I don't think it causes any kind of uh, sort of spiritual crisis. But it, um, but there is there is a kind of a functional question there of, well, is it just um, luck that certain things don't seem to show up, or is there actually some kind of constraint? And mm-hmm. and it could be a physical constraint. It could be mechanically go, why doesn't it do it this way? Oh, because it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. In other cases, it might be like, oh no, that works physically, but nothing's ever done it, and then. That's when I knock on the doors of my developmental biologist buddies and I'm like, <laughs> would this work developmentally? And they're like, no, there's no way you could build that. 
right um, like like have just you ever like, tried have you ever like let's build this and throw it off the roof well no we haven't we haven't done that but um but i have but i i actually do collaborate with developmental biologists on, on a number of projects and that that is often a real constraint it's like yeah embryos can't do that mm-hmm. like vertebrate embryos oh, sure. like they're stuck doing this this and this just because of the way that, that vertebrate development works oh, okay um and so they you know there's just there's no way that's ever going to show up because mm-hmm. if you if it, in order to make that it'd have to change this which would have to change this which would have to change this thing which would mean they have no head you know or something you yeah. know or, or whatever you know mm-hmm. and uh, it was like oh uh, a good example i use uh with my students actually is I tell them, you know, you know, you know, these are all future physicians. I say, you know, you will have patients in the future. You know, you'll, you'll get x-rays or whatever on them that will have extra vertebrae in their back. Um, it won't be common, but you'll you'll see enough patients that you'll probably see it once or twice, you know. Are you talking, not vertebrae, and, and to be on the vertebrae, the upper neck ribs that people get sometimes? Well, that's one variation you get, but I'm talking uh-huh. about the actual vertebrae themselves, the number of those. So they're rare, but you can have some, you can, you can have some extra ones in your back and lower back, um, but not in the neck. So you can get weird ribs on the neck, which causes sometimes some symptoms, um, mm-hmm. but you don't have extra. We all have seven cervical vertebrae. In fact, by we, I don't just mean humans, I mean mammals. Uh-huh. A dolphin, which has almost no neck to speak of, mm-hmm. has seven bones in its neck. They're just all smashed together. Same, really short. same with uh, giraffes, right? right? Seven huge ones. Seven huge ones on a giraffe, exactly. And so they're going, why the heck would you only have seven? And again, <laughs> the first thing you do is you look mechanically. Well, is there a reason why mechanically you can't have more than seven cervical vertebrae? Well, the way you check that is you check other animals. And the question is obviously, or the answer to that question is obviously no, because mm-hmm. you know swans have like 23 or something. Owls have 14. The highest neck bone count is in an extinct animal. It's in a plesiosaur, a long-necked marine reptile, that had 72. And that's not a multiple of seven. So it does, as, as far yeah. as like the embryos, I, I kind of was tracking you a little bit there. Like, well, okay, there must be some logic. But 72 makes no sense. It makes no sense, yeah. So it's not something about magic of seven per se. Mm-hmm. It just is the number of mammals have, have ended up with. So that part of it is essentially random. What's not random is the fact that mammals don't tweak it. So why are mammals constrained and reptiles can have anywhere from, you know, seven up to <laughs> 72? And the, and the answer is because in mammals, we use the same genes to give us the number of bones in our neck, as well as some of our other important cell differentiations early in embryology. So, for example, if you, if you mess with those genes, you tinker with those genes, you can just basically throw mutagens to these things until you get something that oh, mutates where you want. You will. So you get like mouse embryos that mm-hmm. start to develop, say, eight cervical vertebrae. About a third of them get embryonic cancers. Hmm. which is a really rare weird what thing. about the other two-thirds are they okay no the other two-thirds die of other things um <laughs> but just but just that alone like this weird thing like that just went horribly wrong early why you know yeah. and then other th- horrible things will go wrong too they, they can't survive I mean, what's happened is you've messed with something that is it's not a matter of the fact you changed the neck that doesn't matter what happens is in order to change the neck you had to change a gene that also gets used or a block of them that also get used to tell sells some important things about their basically their identity mm-hmm. and so they lose that if you mess with those genes so yeah that makes broken sense. a major part of how they build themselves and they just they just self-destruct basically so the it becomes so it becomes this weird constraint so so sometimes it's mechanical constraint you can't be bigger than this because you collapse you know and that's the kind of stuff i tend to work on but sometimes i do hit a a point where i'm like well I've tried everything I can think of, and I just cannot figure out why they don't do this thing, mm-hmm. you know. And then 
development usually comes into play. It'd be interesting hearing you have that conversation with someone in the like strictly mechanical sense with like a car or something because they run into the same problems. Like, why hasn't anyone removed the restrictor from this or opened up the car or injected fuel in this way and you drive it and then it blows up? And they go, oh, that's why. You need yeah, this right. balance, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, why, why, you know, why do you always, yeah, why do you always have, uh, you know, ha- have you tried not having an exhaust system? Yes, that would be bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Does it, so you, going back to, and I don't know how much you want to get into this, but <clears throat> the Big Bang, as far as we know, formation of our universe mm-hmm. within its solar system, galaxies and planets and our particular little planet with life seemingly happening, unless it's some bizarre simulation. Um, and then going to like the, embryos with the mice where we are kind of god you know you you if that mouse could look up and be like why did you do this to me that'd be a terrible feeling it would be terrible and hopefully they don't hopefully there isn't that level of consciousness but go like goldblum in jurassic park the idea of like and not that he says like we're playing god but just this feeling of you mess with it like you mess with mess with nature it it's gonna sort itself out I don't know if all those things tie together to, to some degree, but you know, we get, we're mankind. We're so industrious. We're busy. We're, we're tinkering on things where what you are doing is it embodies in a lot of ways to me, exactly what humanity is. What if we did this? Could we do this? Hey, we're, and we, but it involves a lot of knowledge and a lot of understanding prior to, but does it seem like, uh, what we live in is a similar thing that it was created with, you know, fish food getting dropped into an aquarium or, uh, some sort of bizarre explosion or what are your thoughts on that oh boy getting really uh yeah we're getting we're getting existential now um but it's a, it's a, it's a good question i i don't know i the i actually see, i personally see pretty significant differences between how we tinker if you will versus how we see the contingencies of the universe play out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that I think that gives us a reprieve from ethical concerns of tinkering. <laughs> um, but, uh, but a lot of the, to me, those ethical concerns just for you personally are l- not so much that the tinkering itself is intrinsically say playing God, but rather that um, you are, you are playing around with technology that is potentially very potent. That you don't in- entirely understand and someone could get hurt mm-hmm. right i mean that's really the you know something could get hurt you could do you know either the things you're experimenting on um but uh, even you know the experimenters or you know and there's you know all kinds of different ways that, that technology of course can be mishandled and that sort of thing so there there's there's ethical concerns associated with biotechnology for sure mm-hmm. lots of them uh in some cases probably to a to a degree that we have not seen with other sorts of technologies because we are ourselves biological organisms and then there's opens up all these weird things about well, do we tinker with ourselves yeah um but it doesn't sort of keep me up at night in the sense of being like oh but what if what if this is all just some kind of strange experiment? <laughs> I mean, it could be, mm-hmm. but the thing is, if that were the case, then we shouldn't be able, none of our predictive models should ever work, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or, or, or I guess the alternative is, if our predictive models keep working, right? Yeah. Like we, if, we, if, 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 you know, we don't always get the right answer the first time, but if the basic process of building a model and testing it and, and validating it and eventually finding out that you can make some predictions and then refine it over time. If that whole process generally works, it means either we're not in a fishbowl being fed fish food <laughs> or we are in such a way 
that it exactly lines up with how we think the universe should work mm-hmm. in terms of fundamental physics, <laughs> in which case it, it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. anymore you know i mean to me then the difference the, the difference doesn't doesn't matter it's it's sort of like you know basically we know with high confidence that we can describe the universe as math mm-hmm. this could be because somehow the universe got produced with with that in mind mm-hmm. or it could just be it just happens to be that way the universe we live in just works in a way that you can describe it mathematically it has physics yeah right it just does not for any reason. There's no meaning in it. It just does. Or there could be a ton of meaning in it. Um, that's a cool question. It's a really deep question. It's a question I'm glad other people think about and debate, but it's not the one I work on. What I want to <laughs> know is, okay, so long as I can describe it with math, what's the math? Mm-hmm. Okay, I like that. What, do you worry at all, <clears throat> say, working on this armor or things like that, you know, being... Oppenheimer, one of these guys tasked with you, you, you could be working on something that could give give way to you know something that could be used nefariously or given get to the wrong hands and be a detriment to society as a whole. Or you're like, no, nothing I'm working on is going to be that potent or, or dangerous. I, at the moment, I don't think I'm working on anything that would be. I, I wouldn't expect it to be that dangerous, but yes, I do fully recognize that there's there could be military ap, ap, uh, applications. I even have been on a military grant before, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it, it could be that someone someone creates a weapon um, all out of some stuff I'm doing. Uh, it's more likely they'll create surveillance equipment and body armor, um, mm-hmm. which in a sense is still weaponization. Um, uh, I guess maybe that doesn't. Maybe it shouldn't, but it doesn't bother me as much as you know a, a new a new type of ex- high yield explosive, but. So it goes. Yeah. But someone could easily make the argument that I'm splitting hairs there. And it's still the fundamentally the same problem. And I do, you know, and yeah, I do think about that a little bit. And I'm not saying I never have any kind of sort of moments of self-doubt, but it's not huge. I, I'm, um, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of Asimov's work. And oh, okay. uh, my father and I used to read his stuff all the time together. We would, like both read the same book and then we talk about it each night <laughs> and over dinner and stuff. It was great. Um, and uh, one of my favorite quotes from him is he said that if by, uh, if through if knowledge can create problems, it is not through ignorance that we will solve them. Ooh, I like that. So it's you know, kind of thing, yeah, you know, or you know, will I create some problems? Yeah, probably. Um, I'm going to try to create more solutions than I create problems. Mm-hmm. That's you know, it's just, you know, I think the best you can do is be on the on the net gain end of it. Yeah, in the movie, you're a key asset. You're someone that the bad guys get their hands on and hold a gun to your head and be like, "No one move!" And then the good guys go, "Crap, they got our." If anyone was going to solve this, it was Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I, you you put a lot of confidence in me. I appreciate that. That's that's, uh, that's good. I'll try not to get captured by enemy forces. Thank you. I, or hopefully you have some trap rigged in. You've got you know a failsafe in some way involved. Yeah, they, they they don't know that I've already modified myself with <laughs> with a bulletproof exoskeleton. Yeah, yeah. They they pulled the trigger and I survive. I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to get on that. Okay, cool. Please do. Um, all right. I have a. F- I guess. Um, let me. Well, for, we didn't get to the all the the periods. Yeah, you, yeah, and sort of, the, sort of the, the span of time. Yeah, so it's it's kind of fun. I want I, I like kind of doing the kind of walk through time. So mm-hmm. um, before we start, yeah. I I do want to. I always think about this that the sixty five million years seems mm-hmm. like a long stretch. The period, uh, be, you know, post Big Bang and up to four billion and change years ago, Earth's kind of formed and it's cooling off and. 
could there have been things that were gelatinous kind of jelly creatures that had consciousness that left no fossil record at all in some of those gaps in there cartilage people that, that we have no record of them existing and maybe they were incredibly intelligent is that something that you guys ever think about or is that absurd oh no it's, it's not absurd it's a fun thought experiment um but it's one of those things where we like I said, we have no record, right? right. So we just so we're just the typical mode is that we're going off the assumption, uh, go off the assumption that the record is at least somewhat indicative of of, of reality. That mm-hmm. you know, there's gaps, but the gaps are not um, so extreme that you're missing a whole civilization, for example. But mm-hmm. you could be. Um, yeah, there's no way for us to know whether or not there was a gelatinous super organism in you know the Hadean Ocean that then just you know got wiped out. Okay. But there's a number of reasons I think that's unlikely. They're all pure application of of the best theory we've got. Not they're not at all empirical, okay. you know, kinds of approaches sure. to, to to that. And in fact, there could have even been a, a civilization, for example, you know, much more recent, for example, that we wouldn't necessarily have much record of. I mean, the structures we build, a lot of them wouldn't last millions of years. Mm-hmm. Even things we think are really big and grand and everything, yeah. Thousands, maybe millions now. Right. So, you know, we could also ask ourselves similar question, but it's kind of fun, creates a little bit of a fun existential crisis. 50 million years from now, will a future intelligent species, if humans are gone, yeah. will they have any idea that we had a civilization? Yeah. They'll probably find, they'll find, they'll find fossils of humans. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, oh, there was a large cranial capacity primate walking around. But will they have <laughs> any idea that we built the Great Wall and, and went to the moon <laughs> and and built the Eiffel Tower? And the and, worst part about that yeah. is that that skeletal remain that they found was, say, one of our most revered figures. Say it was Stephen Hawking or something like that. Right. And then they're going to pull his head up and clack his jaws together and go they probably talked like this and we, if we could watch it we go hey leave our guy alone yeah right <laughs> i'm clacking his jaw <laughs> yeah, you have you have no idea what you're holding it's like one of the most precious things that ever exists you know yeah right you know it's um yeah absolutely well you know it's it's funny the um uh, sometimes too the things that we that we think would be obvious or, or that are that we we've kept a record of in our cultural consciousness um don't even know how much a physical record now already like yeah. the, one of the great examples that my uh, uh, Greek history professor made he says you know people go to Athens uh, all the time for lots of wonderful reasons it's a wonderful beautiful place to visit um, and one of those things of course is an interest in classical history and there are tremendous artifacts and architecture to be seen there mm-hmm. um, no one visits Sparta no one makes like a trip to see Sparta even though it was tremendously important historically because there's nothing there mm-hmm. they just they didn't use marble construction because it wasn't important to them. They used wooden construction. So there's yeah. nothing left. Yeah. There's nothing there. It's just gone. Yeah. You know, and it's, and so, you know, we know because it wasn't that long ago in the big scheme of things that they were there and roughly where they were and what they, in some of the things they did and their importance in various military conflicts in particular and things like that. But, you know, thousands of years from now, that may have largely faded from, from knowledge if we don't keep good records and there will be no physical record they existed there's like a little bit of pottery that you can find there if you dig and that's about it that mu- museum i think just over the weekend in brazil that burned like yeah. a million plus potential artifacts and things and oh uh, yeah my the, heart is still broken over that i actually know a bunch of the people that work there and uh there, there was a lot of terrorist specimens there and uh, and so that um yeah that museum was 
near and dear to my heart and the people that are particularly near and dear to my heart and all I try that. to just when I hear of something like that and it makes me so sad I wonder then if I've been conditioned to that I start thinking of MPEGs and JPEGs and and just things that are in a cloud right now that, that matter we can access them immediately and see them and hear them and look at them but if that went down they're as ephemeral as realistically those artifacts were in the grand scheme of things so i try to think of it that way and it makes me feel slightly better but it's still such a bummer yeah no it's it really is uh that, that was really tragic uh the latest we've heard is that some things did survive oh, some artifacts good. did survive but but a lot of things were destroyed and we'll, we'll know more soon um one of the things that survived though interestingly enough so it's kind of i think this is you know kind of a, not exactly silver lighting, but sort of kind of a fun story in an otherwise very tragic, dark scenario. Um, is that the meteorites, of course, survived. <laughs> because the heat that they experienced entering the atmosphere and the and the energies they experienced impacting the fire was nothing right They're like like and, and you see these you see i've seen some of the images you know they went in they took some photos and they just it's just like a, an apocalypse nothing's left except yeah. this one meter in the middle of the room that's like totally unscathed yeah he's like this it, is nothing nothing he's like where my friends go yeah this is this is great like you know like you're thinking wow that fire is so hot it's like yeah not compared to what that thing saw when it entered <laughs> the atmosphere like it cares not at all it's like fire this this is you call this fire huh it kind of tickled you know like it was you know I mean, it was a raging fire it burned it yeah. gutted the place it's, that it's photo from the heartbreaking top oh god whew. yeah but it just but it also in a way just goes to show like it's an interesting lesson in the physics of these things it gives you some perspective in terms of like that fire one of the hottest things you or i would ever yeah. see or could be near you know was nothing to those objects yeah you know to most of the objects it was just you know just incinerated them and then but then to a meteorite it's nothing it just really gives an interesting <laughs> yeah just in contrast you're like yeah yeah you're gonna need a lot more heat <laughs> if you want to <laughs> remelt that <laughs> i wonder the term relativity you know we think of it in a lot of different ways i suppose mm-hmm. normally obviously like associated with um with Einstein and, and, and gravity and time, et cetera. But that's a good one too, that like, you know, relative temperature to like, this is hot compared to what? Yes. Are you a, are you a meteor? Are you a meteorite? Then it's nothing. Then it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Re- yeah. What, what is hot? What is cold? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, uh, another one too, a fantastically brilliant uh, biomechanist, uh, in my, my opinion, and I think many people's opinions, one of the best biomechanists working today is uh, Sheila Patek. And she uh, she works a lot on on rapid motions in animals, mm-hmm. in animals, and and one of the things that she has up like on her website, she's open talks with this as well. She says, "What is fast?" Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 she kind of starts with like, you know, here's something, you know, here, here's something moving quickly or running or whatever. Is that fast? And of course, maybe like yeah, but then she shows something that like it's much much faster. Like, well, what about the strike on this animal? That's you know, instead of being you know, 10 G's, it's 100 G's. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, okay, well, that's fast. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, here's a mantis shrimp, and it's like 10,000 G's. <laughs> and they're like, what? Like, yeah, that's fast. You know, <laughs> so it's like, you know, yeah, they were all fast by some measure, but it's all about, like, what is it, yeah, you know, yeah. what what is your reference point? Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that, that presentation. It's really, really cool. People, uh, I think... Uh, I don't want to say hippies, but a lot of times people that get into like, oh, are you into like quantum energy? And they'll bring up like neutrinos, like, oh, they're they're so fast. We don't know where they are. You know, the speed of light fast or are they faster than that? And that kind of thing, which I get the whole relative scale is it. But that 
that we can see them, that we can see physical animals moving. Go, That's really fast. And like, no, watch no. this thing. No, no, not so much. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, and and actually, what's what's really kind of fun too is you can you ask people to come up with things they think are fast, and they give you a long list, and they said they may not really be compared to certain reference yeah. points. And then you ask people for things that are really slow. Mm-hmm. That actually becomes inter- a kind of a fun psychological challenge. Like, okay, well, not motionless, but just really slow. And then, yeah. and then ask, ask for, what's something that's really medium? <laughs> <laughs> Me. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's see how right in the middle, you know, you know for anything. I, I mean, even you can even just do it. You can get more abstract to just the numbers. One of my favorites, like, think of a really big number. Mm-hmm. Okay. Think of a real small number. Okay. Think of a really medium number. <laughs> uh, 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 what? Uh, you know, and then of course the the fun the flip on that is you go look that last one was much more psychologically challenging for you, right? Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, okay. But all three of those were equally as irrelevant or relevant depending on how you look at, it, right? Yeah. Like like you still have a big number. Well, it was an infinite array of numbers. So who is to say that was big? I can come up with something many 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 times bigger. No matter what number you came up with, yeah. there is one bigger, much much bigger. And no matter how small you thought, <laughs> there's one much much smaller. Mm-hmm. So the big and the small numbers were just as absurd as the medium one. It's just, yeah. it's just, that's not how our brain works. No, it definitely is not. So it's kind of fun. I worked myself into like the really small space at one point And I, I think I woke up my girlfriend was like, Hey, I, I have some new thoughts on infinity. <laughs> she thought that was just the silliest thing to say, but I, I don't, I, there is something about that of like yes. trying to, trying to pin it down, trying to get down to that small point. Like, Oh, well it can only go potentially this far. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think that researchers, engineers, scientists, you know, anyone, um, or, or really any artists, anyone at all, um, that has to deal with scale. People who think in the really large scales, at least, well, you know, relative to our typical experience, so things much bigger than what we are naturally adapted to deal with, yeah. both in time and space. Yeah. And those who are thinking about really things are really small, things much, much smaller than we typically interact with or recognize we're interacting with, um, have a lot of things in common philosophically. Like I'm someone who works on things that are really big. Mm-hmm. And I don't even necessarily mean they work on big animals. I mean, that is one, because in the, in the, in the reference scheme of how big an animal can be the things i work on are really huge yeah. but of course they're still not very big if you're looking at planets or stars or things like that yeah but they're big in that reference scheme but i really mean more time mm-hmm. the spans of time yeah that i think about and work on and it's and it's i found that actually i have obviously kindred spirits and other people who work on deep time but people who work on really fast things or really tiny things have a, a similar mental state it's just which side which how where are the decimals is there a whole whole bunch of them behind the number or in front of the number <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know in question are you do you work in the realm of one point you know one comma zero 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 or are you work in the point zero 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 one realm yeah, right? yeah. you know go both ways but in both cases the deal is it's kind of like I feel like it's kind of taking the blinders off in a way. Like there's a certain range of speed and size and time that we're naturally adapted to deal with because yeah. they're the, the they're the the they're the paces and sizes and such that that matter to in our, to our deep ancestry and that that's what our sensory systems are adapted to deal with, and and then you step well outside of that and that takes a lot of training and, and special equipment and. Uh, special ways of thinking about things and new kinds of mathematical approaches yeah. in order to somehow do that. So working on the range of weeks or months or years, you can do that with the equipment that you were 
you know, that you have on board, basically, right? All your normal sensory systems. Yeah, but if yeah. you want to think about millions of years, all of a sudden you have to step way outside that and use other methods and proxies and things. That's so Yeah. I, I was thinking about the, you know, the universe accelerating out is a strange concept that, like, acceleration means that it's not, even if it's a uniform acceleration, it's still change. It's ever-changing as it goes. And from the beginning, if time was measured, like, if... Like that was just one increment of time, but as it expanded out, then those started sounding like, but they were still the same unit. Yes, uh, you know, like that. That that trips me up when I. I, I, That's bizarre. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, that's harder to wrap your uh, your mind around. I think even than things that are very small or very large, because that's the reference itself changing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like oh. Like, the idea of conceptualizing that, oh, that star is speeding away from me. Mm -hmm. I can do that, mm -hmm. right? Um, or speeding towards me. I can do that. But actually, what it is, it's not, it looks kind of like it's speeding away from me, but actually, the space between me and it has gotten bigger. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. The space itself has stretched. Mm -hmm. So, I measured it further away, but it's not actually a comet. It just is, the space is bigger. And it's like... Uh, uh, mm, ow, okay. Uh, I need to sit down and have a much stiffer drink. Ouch, you know, <laughs> if you watch a friend exit anywhere, but particularly like say down a long hallway, you instantly go, "Well, they're getting small down there," and the star is moving away at such an immense speed, and yet every night you're like, "They're still in this hallway at the same spot." <laughs> yeah, right. They're not going anywhere. That's frustrating. That's exactly what you were just saying. Like, I, I need to get my head around this a little bit because the, the the hallway is either getting much longer but my friend doesn't seem to be disappearing at the way i would expect right okay i guess on that same line i'm god i've and i'm checking in with you to give me some intel on how my project uh universe 27605 went and particularly i want to know about this little place in this galaxy that i've called milky way and i want to know how uh the, the earth planet, I call it, how things fared there. I had some ideas in mind. I thought that potentially after it formed that these giant lizard-like things would uh, develop as well as some mammals that were intelligent. They'd ride them. They'd all work together to create super suits and jump onto other planets and launch and navigate their way through different galaxies and eventually out into the universe just loping along like they were riding these giant lizards in their super suits. So I'm curious how it went. If you can give me a trajectory of time, I'd appreciate you filling me in. Yeah, so there, there's some good news and there's some bad news. Okay. okay. The, the bad news is that the timing didn't really work out on the giant reptiles and the humans. Yeah, so we, you know, the, the, some of the other stuff that you have, you know, spinning around the cosmos wiped out the big reptiles long before we were here we did find their fossilized corpses though okay so we and we were excited about that great and the good news is we are starting to hop around to other worlds so we finally sent something beyond the borders of our own solar system we've been on our our moon our sister sister planet we're thinking about going out to mars so you know we're we're, we're working on it that's the good news good. um uh the other bad news is we decided the best way to power all this was to 
burn some of the the minerals that were left behind, uh, particularly uh, oh hydrocarbons. God, I borrowed those from my cousin. Yeah, and well, well, we decided not only to, to burn those hydrocarbons, we decided to burn them basically all at once. Uh, uh. So, so that's yeah. So we we we're having a, a problem with short term versus long term planning. It turns out. <laughs> um, but in, in terms of the overall overall scheme, yeah, we went all right about at about about. Four billion or so years ago, um, some things that we think were essentially life that could reproduce themselves um, uh, start, you know, appeared uh, essentially as sort of a it made the transition from sort of complex chemical to something we would consider to be alive. It's a little bit of an arbitrary distinction, but we think that transition happened around there. Uh, we know they're definitely around by three point five billion because uh, we have some fossils of of things that were built by colonies of these living things, which is pretty cool. Um, we also have some other indirect evidence. We're pretty sure that they were uh, they were making a lot of oxygen there a little bit before that because they oxidized all the iron. Uh, probably also almost poisoned all themselves to death. Uh, but fortunately, some of them became able to you know you know uh, uh, some of them had had uh, mutations that allowed them to use oxygen, and so the era of oxygen based metabolism. And in this iron period, was the sky red? The sky red, <laughs> or the oceans were red. The, yeah, the oceans would be red. Yeah, okay. and I see the sky. Yeah, that's question. I don't know what what the well the the sky might have been uh, been pretty volcanic in some places. The sky might have been pretty gray. Um, but yeah, so the you know, and and so we we had a long period where, from our selfish perspective, is multicellular sentient primates um, was boring. Um, mm-hmm. Although chemically, it was probably very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a few billion years, and then at, at a little before half a billion. Maybe around 600 million or so, um, some more multicellular types of things start showing up, um, and we don't have much. We have like impressions of their of their dead bodies. Basically, <laughs> they were kind of neat, but they didn't do much. But they got really interesting at around right around half a half a billion, uh, 500 million years ago, when they started making skeletons, mostly exoskeletons, and then shortly thereafter, some things had some endoskeletons, and and uh, we call that the Cambrian. And, and we suddenly found a whole bunch of fossils of them. So we called it the Cambrian Explosion because uh, I should also probably let you know we were actually we, we, we were very violent um, humans. So we like analogies to uh, explosions and fire and things like that. That's hard to hear. It's yeah, everyone was supposed to get along in my original designs. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they were. There's um, it, it's starting to get a little starting to get a little little rough with seven billion of us. Um, I'm guessing that's more than you probably had in mind. Uh, any case, uh, so we call it the Cambrian Explosion, and and that's basically a rapid diversification of things of all kinds of hard parts and stuff. And uh, and that was a, that's a really cool kind of checkpoint in the in the fossil record, and uh, and that kicked off a, a time period we call the Paleozoic, so the old life. And the Paleozoic was started out as something we we would find really alien. There wasn't any life on land; it's all in the oceans. The life in the oceans was very strange, all kinds of weird arthropods and stuff. Um, but about halfway ish through the Paleozoic, a little more than halfway, um, there actually there were some vertebrates on land. So so that that's a cool transition for us. Of course, arthropods had already made it there, and and, and plants made it there even earlier than that. So there's there's a couple of different stages. You know, around 400 million. You know, for, for some of the plants making it on on the land, and then you know 300. We've got by that that point we have you know, arthropods there and and vertebrates just starting to, to make the make the jump basically a little before that um and uh and things get really cool in the permian 
Uh, you got these big saber tooth things uh, that were you know, pretty closely related to our ancestors as mammals. They were running around and stab murdering the heck out of these other big herbivorous things. And it was well, awesome. That's, that's good. And that was pretty cool. Yeah. And all the continents were united in a thing we call Pangea. Um, we, we had to figure out that that was the case. That was really hard for us to figure out. No, it wasn't hard. It's not hard for you, but you knew what was going to happen. Right. But I hope to please tell me it stayed Pangea. It didn't, unfortunately. Yeah, but, Everyone but, was supposed to have dinner every night together. Yeah, it was probably just as well because it turns out that actually that united continent with massive internal desertification and then these big basalt traps opened up and anyway the Permian ends up it, well, it ended with the worst mass extinction in Earth's history. Oh. Uh, over 95% of everything died horribly and tragically and probably painfully. Um, That's the what, one thing I was trying not to have happen. I know, I know. But, 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 it, but the good news is not everything died. Not everything died. And and so at the end of the Permian, we feared, well, that's that's a hell of a transition, you know, this this you know going after this apocalypse. So we'll give it a new name. So we feared, well, after the old life comes the middle life. So Mesozoic. So the Mesozoic or Mesozoic is the middle life, and we and and, and we split that up just like we did the Paleozoic. So we've got a Triassic, a Jurassic, and a Cretaceous. Uh, and we're very fond of the Mesozoic because a lot of stuff that we really care about happens in the Mesozoic. So uh, the first mammals show up fairly early in the Mesozoic in the Triassic. Um, the first of these things we call dinosaurs show up then too. The first turtles. Turtles are really cool. They're these armored things. And yeah, that was, those are in my plans. Good, good, yeah, because they're cool. We, we appreciate the turtles. The turtles are really cool. Um, and so they, and then they show up and and uh, uh, it, if you were, if you know, we're pretty sure if we took a time machine to the Triassic, we'd like time machines, by the way, if you can work that out. If we could take a time machine to the Triassic and look at that, um, it would still be kind of an alien world to us. Like, we'd start to see some of these familiar groups, but the plants would still be kind of weird to us and things like that. Um, but then, you know, as the Mesozoic goes along, it gets more and more familiar. So in the Jurassic, um, we have, you know, by that point, dinosaurs are all over the place and a lot of them are huge or the big terrestrial vertebrates at the time and you've got things that are herbivores and you got things that are predators that you know kind of understand those roles and uh, and, and birds show up in the late Jurassic so that's pretty cool we're very fond of birds we've got a lot of them there. took them long enough I, I they were supposed to be there from the very beginning yeah well they got beaten to it actually by the whole flying vertebrate thing they got beaten to it by pterosaurs so pterosaurs show up in the late Jurassic too they're all dead now we're really sad about it but they were you know these flying reptiles did you know did you know they were going to get enormous by the way some of them got like giraffe height and that was my friend Jeff that threw those in there. Oh, so that was... I actually eradicated them. Apologies about that. Oh, well, that's that's, that's a real shame because I would have loved to see a 35-foot wingspan thing flying around today. But any case, they're flying around and the birds getting on the game in, in the late Jurassic. And you get in the Cretaceous and you get all kinds of crazy things. you got giant marine lizards in some of the seaways and we've got plesiosaurs in the seaways as well. And then we have, uh, you know, by the late Cretaceous, you have horned dinosaurs, horns in their faces and tyrannosaurs and and uh and it's and it's awesome and just lots of birds now um but uh you, you left an asteroid hanging around out there that was a little little close i do that yeah um anyway I never clean up my stuff yeah well it hit the yucatan and uh at about 66 million years ago and almost wiped out everything again um that was rough. Classic me. Yeah. But but again, something survived. So uh, crocodilians made it through. A lot of the turtles made it through. One group of, of birds made it through. They're the only dinosaurs that made it through. They're all the other dinosaurs. We loved all those armored dinosaurs and those tyrannosaurs and everything. We would love to see them, but they all died. So, And no one ever rode them. No one ever rode them. Yeah. Missed by 66 million years. And uh, and uh, all the pterosaurs that were around that point were, were gone, you know. And uh, by that point, of course, the, the Mesozoic, it's 150 
million years, 160 million years of, of time, a lot of things have come and gone. You know, the things that are there at the end were very different from the things at the beginning. Um, but, you know, beginning of the Triassic, it was, it would have been really alien, kind of post-apocalyptic world after the impermanent extinction. By the Cretaceous, you've got flowering plants, you've got snakes, you've got modern-looking turtles, you've got some modern-looking birds, um, uh, and you have some relatively modern-looking mammals, but there weren't that many of them, and most of them are pretty small. Are they wearing hats? They weren't wearing hats. Mm. Yeah, not yet. Uh, we're the only ones who wear hats. So, so after the Cretaceous extinction, we enter what we call the recent era, new era, so the Cenozoic. And, um, and mammals really took off in terms of kind of doing wacky things and getting big and stuff then because, well, your, your rocket killed almost <laughs> all the dinosaurs. Uh, and so there was no one doing that stuff, so they did it. So instead of having giant flying reptiles of the pterosaur variety, we had giant, a new kind of giant flying reptile. We had birds. There were some really big birds. We have giant flying birds and small flying birds. And we have, uh, and then we had, uh, you know, get big mammals. Some of them decided they wanted, you know, that water looked more appealing again. Uh, so, you know, the, you know, all kinds of interesting selection. They went back there. in. They went, someone went back in. So we got whales now. It's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, then, you know, a lot of, a lot of selection for, uh, for aquatic habitats, uh, aquatic adaptations there because there wasn't any big marine reptiles anymore, probably. And anyway, so that's, uh, so we get the, the whales and stuff going that, that happened on pretty early on. And, uh, we had all kinds of cool stuff along the way, giant penguins. So some of the birds went back in and you know, started swimming too. And, uh, some of them said, you know, some of them stopped flying, um, and just got huge, like six foot tall penguins. That was, those were cool. Yeah. Um, I'm glad they did that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and there's these weird things that are called primates that show pretty early on, but then they, they the subset of them called called apes that we call apes uh, show up a bit later. And then of those, there's these things called hominids, and and there's a split between some kind of you know between the, our kind of lineage and the chimpanzee lineage at about six million years ago or so, um, and that's when really things started to ramp up to sort of stuff that you know like us. Um, and so the last six million years has been some really crazy hominid evolution. We only get little bits and pieces because they haven't left a lot of fossils. Um, but then, yeah, you know, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand years ago ish, depending exactly uh, where you you make the kind of set the transition. You have uh, have you know, are modern humans, and uh, we've been building civilizations for tens of thousands of years. And um, so you made all you made all that stuff down there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah, a lot of it anyway. Um, uh, and and we, you know, and then the last handful, we've, you know, mostly been been mucking things up. But, you know, but we, we, we've, we've, we've tried our best. We, we have space shuttles, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, um, and we have, uh, uh, we have hospitals. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and we have, uh, and, you know, we have, we have research ships and, and, uh, and all kinds of, of fun things and, and, uh, nuclear power plants. We also have nuclear weapons that may not have been such a good idea, but, yeah. uh, well, it yeah. doesn't sound, I mean, are you guys working to bring back the dinosaurs so you can suit them up and ride them? Well, uh, it turns out that the, 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 the whole genetic code thing that we're all using, this DNA thing, yeah, it has kind of a shorter half-life than I think maybe you had in mind. So it uh-huh. turns out we can't actually get s- sequences from them sufficient to clone I didn't clone think them. anything was going to actually disappear, so I left the blueprints sort of in like disappearing ink, and I right. apologize for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we won't be writing, writing them anytime soon, but... Uh, uh, but we'll be able to sort of retro-engineer something that, that's kind of like that from living birds because we still have them around. We have actually close to 12,000 species of them now. Okay. Uh, they did really well, yeah. Uh, apparently being able to fly is a big advantage. And um, 
Yeah, so maybe we'll make some giant riding chickens. I don't know. Please do. Get some super suits on them. I'd love to see you guys hopping around planet to planet and getting out there. I mean, I made the whole big universe for you guys to go play in. You just keep screwing around on that one little pebble. We're very fond of the pebble. Yeah, uh, we really we're we're, we're 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 working towards branching out. Um, uh, we invented something that's really made it difficult, unfortunately, called politics. Ugh, that is not good. Because once you guys get out there, I mean, some of the worlds you're gonna see, whew, you're gonna love it. One's just fully made of cheese, and you guys like cheese. I love cheese. You love gonna, cheese. You're gonna love it. You hop on out there just bounce around on this cheese you can slide down the holes it's fun I, we look forward to it <laughs> politics well mike that was fantastic have you, ever, you have you ever done that before no no not quite <laughs> that style but you know what i can you know can roll with it no worries that was fantastic thanks man i feel I, i'm gonna have uh, dan put in some uh, applause <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. that was a thorough thorough um con- uh, Pro, you know, a description of the beginning until where we are now, and it's sad that the last word is politics. But hopefully, that's a You're right <laughs> transitional and or temporary thing. But, dude, I I really appreciate it. this. is fantastic. I hope you'll come back and do it again. Yeah, for sure, for cool. sure. We'll have to we'll have to pick another uh, another fun topic. Maybe we'll talk more about cadavers next time or something like that. Yeah, Maybe. I know you, the wealth of information that you have. I was going to ask you all about uh, medical students and how crazy it is that we ask them to just retain these encyclopedia-esque volumes of material and and access them at a moment's notice and yet people tend to do it pretty yeah pretty well yeah they do it it, the expectations we have of them are are honestly um i think a little little outlandish sometimes but uh um anyway yeah there's a there's a whole interesting that's a whole whole nother uh fun train of thought we can get into sometime i i actually uh um i interview in, you know, applicants uh-huh. for the for the school of medicine sometimes as well. So there's a whole different respective tours. Like, because I teach the, <laughs> the the one you know the the students once they're once they matriculate. So I teach first and second year medical students, but then I'm also seeing them as they're all, all in the process and applying and you know and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting scenario because you get like you know mostly you get these really talented amazing students. You're like, wow, you'd be really great for medicine. Wow, you know, uh, yeah, this is a fantastic interview. And then occasionally you get someone you're like, okay, you want to be a doctor. I think you're a sociopath. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to get into that. Well, yeah, let, next time let's uh, let's delve into that because that's, uh, to me, even as fascinating as this. But this is really engaging. And uh, thanks again, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Well, that's a good way to go out on episode 156. Three solid years in increments of 52 of doing this show glad you stuck around if you started from the very beginning if you're new and got on board uh, recently welcome and um, i hope you tell your friends i hope you like it and if you just want to pop in here and there that's fine too if you're listening for the first time i hope you hey maybe you liked it who knows bold of you to start with your very first time on part two of one of the episodes but i don't think they're necessary that you have to have watched the um the original to enjoy the sequel but who knows um as i mentioned before thanks to patreon people but also thanks to people who just chime in from time to time send an email or a tweet or uh an otherwise word of uh you know nice word of encouragement gene hospod uh valerie suinceri who uh recommended 
music and a guest. Jeremy Ross has written it and uh, mentioned a guest. Matthew Clement, he did uh, the original, the first, I shouldn't say the original, but the first bit of like sort of fan art for the show. I think it's uh, now the Facebook official page logo. He drew a nice little space cave. Um, Andy Crest, who we know as Krestovsky, wonderful musician. We'll have more of his music throughout the show, ideally. Penelope, hello. Uh, Stephen Yates, uh, The Stove. Who am I forgetting? I'm sure I'm forgetting. And if you're listening, going, hey, you, you forgot me. I apologize. I'm kind of just going off the top of my head on people that, uh, oh, a Bruise by Dawn. He's been uh, tweeting nice things lately, and hopefully at some point we'll get some beers from him to sample here on the show, and hopefully uh, more years to come. We'll have lots more guests and topics to get to, and if there are some of those that you want to hear, let me know. I'll do my best to... to um, to make that happen. And and again, the more ratings the show has, the more that when I reach out to guests, they look and go, oh, okay, this is a show that people listen to. So it all feeds in on itself. And if that doesn't happen, that's okay. We will, we will figure it out. But anyway, space underscore cave, if you'd like to follow the show itself on Twitter, you can follow me at Huntsberger Junk. It's rarely worth following, in my opinion. It's a terrible Twitter account. But I do have links to shows when I do them and or... Uh, guest updates and things like that. And you can email the show directly, pings at the Space Cave. Thanks to Rob Crow for doing this beautiful theme song. Welcomes you into the Space Cave every week. And Dan Pritchard down there in Australia, the land down under, making it happen. Oh, Matt Candeus, I forgot as well, from Indefensive Plants. That's a person I meant to thank. I think that's it. That's all the people. I'm undoubtedly forgetting someone. Haven't heard from Phil in a while. So, Phil, if you're out there, thanks for supporting the show. And all of you who do, again, I know I keep mentioning that, but there are people that silently support the show on Patreon and and don't really interact much, but I appreciate it. This is a song I think you'll like. I enjoy it. It's by Amanda Shires. It's called Leave It Alone. We'll see you at episode 157. Thanks for stopping by the Space Game.